Welcome to this episode of Fossils and Fiction, a podcast that explores the stories of prehistoric life, most often through the stories we humans tell about it. It's produced by me, Travis Holland, with support from Charles Sturt University. Enjoy. Nick, tell me a little bit about yourself. Thanks for joining us for the interview. I'd love to hear a bit about your background. Sure. Well, thanks for having me, Travis. It's always fun to uh, to chat about, uh, about dinosaurs and about paleontology. So my background is I'm one of those kids that knew that I wanted to be a paleontologist uh, since I was a child. Uh, I found my first fossil at the age of, I think it was six or seven. Uh, I'm from Ottawa, Canada. Uh, Ottawa, Canada, the rocks in that area are not dinosaur bearing rocks. They are Ordovician rocks, typically around 450 million years ago. At that time, North America was equatorial. It was kind of lying on its side with the equator going smack right through it. Mm -hmm. And Ottawa, which now, you know, can easily get down to minus 40 in winter, was uh, basically tropical type scenario. We have reefs, uh, beautiful ocean animals, uh, not any vertebrates that I'm aware of. But I found a, an early cephalopod, a, a relative of the squids, a thing called, uh, or an orthocone. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like a long, rather than the kind of coiled ammonites that you can think about, this thing was a kind of a long but solid, unlike modern squid. And that was my first fossil. My, my dad didn't believe me when I first, when I first found it, and, uh, but I said it was a fossil. And then he saw it. I was like, yeah, that is a fossil. And we took it to the Geological Survey of Canada that was in Ottawa, luckily enough, and I got it identified. And that sort of spawned my love of fossils and the fossil record. And that, I don't know, remember exactly where the transition happened from those fossils to dinosaurs, mm-hmm. but I sort of, I mean, maybe it was Jurassic Park. I don't think it was, but <laughs> it could have been. But I definitely, uh, I kind of fell, fell in love with it. Throughout high school, of course, I couldn't admit that I liked, dy- I liked fossils, but... I just kind of had it in the yeah. back of my, my head. And but the notion, uh, as, as the notion as a kid of pulling something out of the ground and, and saying, "Oh, this is this is unique. This is this is an extinct animal." Is really- that's right. And the realization that you're the first human to see it. Mm. I think that's one of the most enjoyable. That, uh, that's it's actually an amazing origin story. I, I think most people <laughs> go, "Oh, I like dinosaurs, so I went and did this thing." But you're kind of yeah, no, I stumbled across a fossil. <laughs> I did. I stumbled across a yeah. fossil, and uh, and yeah, it just kind of spawned that profession. And of course, I didn't know for sure that I'd become a paleontologist, mm-hmm. um, but I was fortunate that as I went through high school, I, I had a love of sciences. And then when I when I reached university, uh, this the university that I ended up going to, kind of, I think that I think they they offered me the best scholarship. Uh, they, they, they started a paleontology, a, a vertebrate paleontology program almost a year after I started. Yeah. And so I was very lucky actually in kind of fall, everything kind of fell into place. Yeah. Sometimes being in the right place at the right time is really important. Um, and you've kind of demonstrated to, you know, right. two links there that. And if, uh, if that isn't an way. analogy for, you know, finding fossils in the fossil record, I don't know what it is. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Now you're at uh, the university of new England. What are you working on at the moment up there? So I guess on a broad level, it's dinosaur diversity. So um, I love the nuts and bolts paleo of going and collecting new specimens, describing them, identifying what we have. But on the flip side, I like applying uh, 
a variety of kind of more modern methods, numerical statistical methods, 3D scanning methods, um, to try to understand dinosaurs on a more biological level. So, yeah, it's kind of a, a, com a combination of modern and traditional paleontology. I guess paleontology is moving in that direction, really focusing on the ecology of things now and considering dinosaurs more as, as living animals. Correct. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree with that. Do you think that's been aided by um, a more popular dinosaur media over the last 30 years? Probably. Um, it's, it's definitely true that we as paleontologists have more and more of the, this sort of expectation that when we publish something, when we work on something, we want to have a sort of public facing uh, view of our discoveries. Mm -hmm. And typically a, a discovery on its own can maybe will be a little bit interesting, but if you can give that, that sort of in that biological in, in interactivity of, uh, of a fossil, you're likely to get a lot more, um, more, more attention, I guess. Yeah. Great. Uh, now, a little bit of background for the listeners. Uh, Nick, I came across you on Twitter at first, and you were talking about a new subject that you were starting up there at UNE. And uh, I was looking to to get into, you know, maybe some study, and I sort of looked at a few different courses around the place. But uh, I was already doing this podcast, and so it just seemed natural that paleontology should be the one that I could do. I think I hadn't considered it until that point because I had figured I needed to be on campus somewhere. And, uh, you know, I'm tied to a campus that, that doesn't have a paleontology program. So sure. yep. where, where was I going to go? Uh, but I saw your subject, uh, which is called dinosaurs and you were talking about it, uh, and it was redesigned as a sort of, um, online subject, uh, focused just on dinosaurs. Tell me a bit about that subject and in general, your approach to teaching. Sure. So um, I guess when I, when I got the job, if we, if we maybe go back a little bit to sort of the sure, beginning yeah. of getting the job here at UNE, um, I was kind of brought on to teach for uh, a colleague who was off on a research grant. Um, and it, uh, I really quickly realized that, that UNE had become a hub of paleo, at least from the, from, from the research perspective. Um, we had at, at that time with me coming in, oh, I, I want to say upwards of six uh, paleont researchers working on different aspects of the fossil record, mm -hmm. uh, anywhere from uh, early Cambrian life and the Cambrian explosion, all the way to modern humans, uh, or I guess fossil humans and human evolution. And uh, it just struck me like, wow, we have this amazing resources of knowledge, but funny enough, teaching paleontology at UNE was suffering. Mm -hmm. uh, enrollments were not great. Uh, and we really only had a few fundamental units. So we had introductory paleontology. Um, we had uh, a brand new vert paleontology unit that had just started that my colleague Phil had started, had, had, had launched. Um, and then we had one that was a bit more of a stratigraphy and how we use fossils to look at the rock record. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, but we have so much more to give than just the sort of the fundamental paleontology that you could probably find in a lot of different um, universities. Um, and the over the over the basically from 2017 onwards, we started renewing some of the teaching content initially just with the, with the units that we had. Um, but then it sort of occurred to to me and to our colleagues that, you know, we have the ability to now grow this. And what we need to be doing is elevating our teaching to the level at which we are producing research, because our research output is, is great. It's high. It's world leading. But our teaching needed to basically reach that as well. Mm -hmm. And so the dinosaur unit was basically the, the first um, attempt at 
really building this uh, uh, this paleo center from both a re research and teaching perspective. Um, and I think the 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 idea was that we want we want a high enrollment. We want a money maker. We want a unit that will will bring people, will attract people. Um, and but then through that, you may notice, for instance, you may have remembered that it took I think maybe four weeks to get into dinosaurs. The initial few weeks in the dinosaur unit was a lot more about fossils, about natural history, about evolution. Um, and so really, we're using dinosaurs as a hook. Um, and of course, we we talk lots about dinosaurs, but it's really about getting people interested in natural history. Um, so. Which is really what uh, a lot of science is, you know, I think geology has, has done that very much. And paleontology itself is, of course, not just dinosaurs, but mm. it's kind of the, that's the plank to get to get people interested in the science. That's right. That's right. And there's yeah. nothing wrong with being interested in it initially because you you, you love dinosaurs. That's how I got into it. And then but then you can re you, you all of a sudden realize that, wow, this world is much bigger. It's much more fascinating than just dinosaurs. Yeah, absolutely. Is there any other SciComm sort of work, science communication work that you kind of do or that you've done, um, Nick? Um, I guess, I mean, I try to, especially when, when we have um, what we would consider relatively impactful papers come out, come out um, we try to do some, uh, garner some sort of media attention. Um, I've written several articles for the conversation, as I know you have as well. Um, and so that's definitely one way of trying to convert what I'm doing uh, in, a, in a kind of pure research wa world to the, um, to the to the general public. Um, so probably that that's one of the main ones. Otherwise, you know, there's the, the kind of standard public talks that one gives on, on, yeah. on and off. Uh, we have a really fun um, uh, event that we do here at U in, in, in Armadale. Of course, you have to be in Armadale to really participate in it. Uh, it's called SciFlix. This mm -hmm. was started by Dr. Marissa Betts, who's another paleontologist here at, at UNE. She loves uh, movies and she loves paleontology. Uh, and so we've been getting sort of this um, cross movie scientist sort of re relationship where a scientist goes up, gives a little a little presentation, then they, we, they show a movie and then there's like a Q&A about the sort of the, the science of the individual, but also the science of the, of the movie. That was going to be my exact next question oh. is I knew about SciFlex and uh, yeah, I was going to, you know, that's, it's, it's a fantastic way to again, get that interest in the, the media stories uh, and combine that or bring the science angle to it uh, yeah. and expand on people's interest and, and, and keep building on that. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, uh, maybe next time you're up, you should, we should try to coordinate with uh, you seeing one. Maybe you, yeah. maybe you want to give one. <laughs> yeah. Well, we can talk about that. Um, <laughs> there are, there are sometimes some frustrating misconceptions that float around in paleontology and, and various other fields. Uh, and you know, you do interviews occasionally, uh, not giving anything away specifically there, but what are some of those frustrating misconceptions sometimes that you might get asked about and you have to kind of tackle head on? Misconceptions, eh? I mean, you're probably right that there are several out there. Um, I think that you know that tackling misconception isn't necessarily a, a, is frustrating. It's 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 okay to ad address them. I think it's mm -hmm. important to address um, when when you, especially like things like uh, well, I mean the, the the typical one these days is the connection between birds and dinosaurs. Uh, even though that you know we've known of that for a long time, it 
it's, it still continuously surprises in interviewers and, and, and whatnot that was not something that they had necessarily sort of considered as, mm -hmm. as much. So, yeah, I think we as scientists try to take any opportunity that we get to, um, to you know, not uh, berate it, but to always kind of remind everybody that, that of these these sort of connections because um, I think it also just makes the, the, the discipline much more interesting to a general gen, general audience. Yeah. Um, I might get a little bit more specific then on the question that I was kind sure. of getting at uh, between the lines. You, you and I participated in an interview a few weeks back as we record. And afterwards, I think you said to me, uh, there was a, a conversation or a question asked about uh, whether crocodiles could take down a T-Rex. Mm -hmm. And uh, you, you kind of said to me afterward, that was weird. <laughs> Where did that question come from? Yeah, well, th that's actually one of the oldest questions, I think. Mm. In and, and to some extent, I think probably for some people, it is a way of trying to, to get some standard. But it's mm. like, okay, I think of this animal as ferocious. Uh, where... Where on that on on my subjective ferocious scale, can I put T T Rex or can I put any any other dinosaur? And so I think that's I think it's almost like the, it's the human condition, right, to try to get perspective on on something that you can't quite grasp. And the fossil mm -hmm. record is really good at that because first of all, it's millions of years ago. We don't even we we don't work on a million year level in our in our own brain. Um, and second of all, it's an animal that doesn't exist nowadays, and so our our fantasy can just run rampant with what this animal was uh, was like. As a biologist and a paleontologist, sometimes those questions are a bit frustrating because you don't really have an answer for them. Yeah. Um, I suppose one would have to really nail down to okay, well, what are the, the 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 biomechanical capacity of this animal versus that animal? And so it's a hard question to answer uh, on the fly, but there's tons of TV shows that have tried to do that. <laughs> and the, the, I guess it's, yeah, it, as you say, it's a question you can't answer on the fly without kind of thinking it through. And there's also a lot of assumptions built in, right? Mm. So, you know, yeah. is it a, is it a um, ambush scenario and on which side and all those That's sorts right. of things? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So yeah. Um, do, do, what role do you think the media can play in helping to tell paleo stories, whether, whether factual media like news and interviews or, or fictional stuff? You can address those separately if you like. Uh, I mean, I think the, the media, the role it plays is to try to bring um, what is often a very complex, con uh, complex concepts um, associated with fossils, evolution, or biological interpretations, and make it digestible to people who may not know all the background. Because obviously, when we write a paper, we've been we've read hundreds of papers in anticipation of writing this paper uh, and have read it multiple times and we have lots of experience dealing with these fossils and we're trying to then sell it to people who have not had the same kind of mm -hmm. background. So I think that is the true challenge of science communicators. And it's, I think there's a, there's definitely an art form um, for, for that. And probably I think that is the, the biggest benefit that the media can, can give us scientists. Absolutely. Nick, I've noticed that fantastic cast of Sorolophus up there on your shelf behind you. Tell us about that specimen. Sure. Uh, so, actually, the specimen number evades me at present. That is a cast of Sorolophus angustirostris, which mm -hmm. is a species from Mongolia. It's from the Nemect Formation, and so it's it fits in that nice, very uh, the Maastrichtian 
um, which is basically the last um, the last age just before the end Cretaceous extinction. Uh, and so it is one of the last living duckbill dinosaurs um, that that we know of. There may be a few in North America as well. Um, the things like in Montosaurus. Sorolophus is actually quite fascinating in that there is a Sorolophus in Mongolia and there's a Sorolophus in North America, mm. Sorolophus osbornei. It's one of the few hadrosaurs where you get the same genus on both sides. Um, so that's a that's wouldn't be very name. wouldn't happen very much with terrestrial dinosaurs in general, would it? Uh, across continents. Yeah, I mean, we we know that they were moving around. Um, mm. Definitely, uh, I mean, they, they, we we find dinosaurs on every single continent. So we know that their their dispersal ability was high, but it is rare to find very closely related ones. Typically, you're looking on a sort of you get kind of regional groupings, and then you get some some dispersion typically lower down on the evolutionary tree. Um, or sometimes what you have is very long. You may you may have a species that are separated by thousands of, of of kilometers or continents away and yet are coming very closely related and that typically is a more of a conundrum than necessarily um uh true knowledge of that mm -hmm. that lineage truly migrating or moving in, in in those directions um but yeah sorolophus is a kind of a neat one at, right at the end you get them in both um on both sides Nick, is there anything else you want to have a chat about? Just uh, you, you've got an open mic here and a, a bit of an true. audience listening on my, my podcast occasionally. What do you want to tell them about paleontology? Ooh, what do I want to tell them about paleontology? I guess to go outside. Mm -hmm. go, go, go get some fresh air. Go, go look for the, uh, the, the rocks in, in your area. Um, there are some really fabulous... Um, uh, web-based applications for knowing what kind of rocks are in your area, uh, like what ages you're looking at. Mm -hmm. um, and as a, as a kid, for instance, I would go out and look for stuff. And in my in my brain, I thought I was going to find dinosaurs, but of course, that was never going to be the case in in Ottawa. Um, so, uh, yeah, go explore the rocks in your area and see, and I guess try to get some some sense of whether or not you can find fossils. Because if you find the right rocks, if you're finding sedimentary rocks there should be fossils in there of some kind. It may not be, you know, dinosaurs, but you may get um, uh, a variety. I mean, plants are everywhere, so you should get plant fossils. You should get... Plants and fish and... Uh, That's right. Insects, potentially, if they're fine enough. That's right. Yep, exactly. All sorts. Great. Go outside. I think that's a great Go thing outside. to end on. Right. <laughs> yeah. Thanks so much, uh, Dr. Nick Campioni. I appreciate your time. Oh, it's my pleasure, Travis. Thank you for listening to this episode of Fossils and Fiction. We're always looking for more paleo stories to tell and welcome your suggestions through our social channels. You can also send voice notes via Spotify or social media. Podcast theme music is Sonora by Quincas Morea via the YouTube audio library. Show notes are available on the website, fossilsfiction.co. Please subscribe and rate the podcast on your preferred podcasting platform.